Now, before our brother Steve Hawthorne comes to speak to us, he's asked me to read a passage. I was going to talk a little bit about Bolivia and things like that, but I'm not, you know, he's going to be the expert on that. But, you know, Bolivia is a landlocked country. Now, you would know that if on every other Wednesday, if, if you were on Zoom or present at the chapel, and you know, hearing, uh, you know, our brother Dave bring the missionary letters. You, you don't just read the letters, okay, here at the chapel. You're going to see pictures and pictures of the countries where they are too. So you can geographically get educated, okay? We're one of the few assemblies that do that. And the reason I say this is I'm so convinced about knowing something about geography. There, uh, I mean, somebody told me this, that, actually it was one of Joyce's cousins told her, told me this, that somebody asked him, hey, you're from India? Oh, okay. Where in South America is India? <laughs> okay? So you, yeah, you, you, you look at that and say, okay, it would be good for people to know geography. So every second, every other you know, Wednesday, if you get on Zoom, your geography knowledge will grow up, go up tremendously, tremendously. That's a plug-in for Wednesday meetings, okay? So, do that. Now, a brother has asked us to, uh, to, uh, re- uh, to ask me to read a passage of scripture. That's Mark, I'm reading from Mark chapter 5 starting at verse 21, and I'm going to read all the way to verse 34. Mark chapter 5, reading from verse 21. Jesus got into the boat again and went back to the other side of the lake, when a large crowd gathered around him on the shore. Then a leader of the local synagogue, whose name was Jairus, arrived. When he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet, pleading fervently with him. My little daughter is dying, he said. Please come and lay your hands on her, heal her, so she can live. Jesus went with him, and all the people followed, crowding around him. A woman in the crowd had suffered for twelve years with constant bleeding. She had suffered a great deal from, from many doctors, and over the years she had spent everything she had to pay them but she had gotten no better in fact she had gotten worse she had heard about Jesus so she came up behind him and through the crowd and touched his robe for he thought to herself if I can touch his robe I will be healed immediately the bleeding stopped and she would feel in her body that she had been healed of this terrible condition. Jesus realized at once that the healing power had gone out of him. So he turned around to the crowd and asked, Who touched my robe? His disciples said to him, Look at the crowd pressing around you. How can you ask who touched you? But he kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the frightened woman, trembling at the realization that what had happened to her came and fell at, on her knees in front of him and told him that she had done. 
And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your suffering is over. Brother Steve has and, and Mary have been in the field for 33 years in Bolivia. Now, he's a product of having gone to medical school at the University of Illinois. Okay? So he's a Midwesterner. So let's welcome our brother, Steve Horthorn. Thank you very much for that introduction and for the invitation to be with you. I think the last time we were here was the fall of 2017, so it's been five years since we've had this privilege of breaking bread with you. And let's open in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you that this Jesus of Nazareth, whom we've read about, is the image of the invisible God. And as we listen to his words and study his actions, we learn about your heart. And I pray as we look at it more closely this morning, you would be using your scriptures to transform us more into his likeness. In Jesus' name, amen. So, <clears throat> sometimes I I feel an objection that, oh well, he's a doctor, he takes a professional interest in these medical stories, but honestly, do we have to talk about gynecology on Sunday morning? <laughs> and I hear that, and... We won't delve too deeply into too many things, but there are a couple points that I do want to call your attention to about this woman's story. Try and put yourself in her place in a, in a Jewish society and if we if we go back to Leviticus with all those unclean laws, you know, there's this passage in chapter 15 of Leviticus that describes this woman when a woman has had bleeding for many days at a time other than her monthly period, she will be unclean as long as she has it. Any bed she lies on will be unclean. Anything she sits on will be unclean. Whoever touches her or those things will be unclean. And how long had she had this? Can you imagine the loneliness that that woman was living with? Twelve years of not being able to touch another person or be touched. Twelve years of of having to keep yourself apart from a meeting like this, God's people gathering together in the temple. And just one other thing to point out, anybody who has menorrhagia for 12 years is going to have anemia. And anemia means you have less red blood cells, you have less oxygen carrying capacity, that means you get short of breath right away, you get tired more easily, anything you want to do, you have to overcome that initial 
fatigue, that lassitude to make that effort. And so, and what's happening in that passage that we read is this almost superhuman effort that this woman is making to elbow her way through a crowd to get close to Jesus. You know, you sense her desperation. And also the fact that she is committing an act of civil disobedience, right? It's against the laws for her to be doing what she's doing in the midst of a crowd where everybody she touches is by leveret law now unclean and would have to be seven days set apart and go through a whole purification thing. So it's just taking her tremendous courage to do what she's doing. And if the story ended with her healed of that condition, it would be a wonderful event. But what I want to call our attention to in particular this morning is verse 33, this additional thing that Jesus does. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. This is the NIV, and I, and I like that expression, the whole truth. Here, in the midst of this crowd, and in the midst of a medical emergency, so remember the beginning of the story? There's a girl who's actively dying. Now, some of you are medical people, but probably everyone has at least seen a medical show on TV at some point, and... When a code is called, you know, everyone stops what they're doing and rushes to that scene and takes their part in resuscitating that person. And a code has been called here. My little daughter is dying, says Jairus. And Jesus is on his way to that scene. And then this other woman's story intersects with the first one. And even after the healing has been accomplished, Jesus creates this space for her to tell her story. To tell this whole truth. And what is that? Well, if you go back to verse 25 and 26, it's summarized. How, where, where did that come from? Okay, so this is Mark's gospel, right? Remember, Mark wasn't one of the twelve disciples. According to church tradition, Mark is being Peter's scribe. Mark is recording Peter's memoirs. And so, this is something that Peter is recalling from this event. Now, you know from other stories that the disciples were not known for being patient with women who wanted to bring their children to see Jesus and otherwise interrupt his busy schedule. They wanted to shoo him along. And just picture, first of all, Jairus off to the side wringing his hands because 
the the sand is running through the hourglass all too quickly for his daughter. And then the disciples, yes, yes, that's all very well, but we are in a hurry. We've got to get somewhere. And Jesus creating this space in the middle of that crowd for this woman who hasn't had anyone to enter into her situation. She's been outcast for 12 years to tell the whole story. That is so amazing to me that even though this is a public story, it's a very intimate scene. And I imagine this woman stammering and wanting to hide, but Jesus encouraging her, listening to her. He noticed her touch in the midst of all that press. Now he's seeing her, and he wants everyone else to see her. And he finishes with that word, daughter. Okay, she's part of the family of Abraham, the people of God, again. Go in, what does he say? And what's that Hebrew marvelous word that we translate peace? Shalom. And we know what a huge word shalom is in the Bible. Our word peace is a bit pallid compared to that concept. When we're talking about telling stories and Jesus allowing this woman to tell her whole story, her whole truth about what happened, when we get a chance to tell our story, I have four words that I remember that are my my framework, and that is creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Okay, creation, Genesis one and two describes what shalom looks like, complete well-being, Adam and Eve and healthy bodies in a harmonious relationship with their environment, with each other, and with their creator, walking with him in the garden. And then that saddest chapter in the Bible, chapter 3 of Genesis, with the fall and the loss of shalom and breaking up of all those four relationships. Ill health coming in, bickering between the husband and wife. Um, the loss of relationship with their God and then the toiling for an earth that doesn't produce for them like it had in the past. So Jesus' intervention, his becoming, God becoming human being, living for us, showing what the kingdom of God looks like, dying for us, raising again, and then inviting us. That's the redemption piece, the third piece and then inviting us to partner with him in his work moving toward the restoration of all things. So that's our that's God's big story. The lo- the the presence of shalom in the beginning, the loss of it 
and then the recovery of it. And so here Jesus has restored this woman's health again. Her heart rate, her her respiratory rate can all come back to normal. Um, The pale color in her cheeks can return to its normal thing. But there's other restorations that need to happen too. The restoration with her community. The fact that she's now free to move about and to enter the temple with, with everybody else. And her restoration to to the family of God, to Jesus as the bridge for her. All that is when he says, Daughter, go in shalom. You're recreated. You are healed. And a big part of that is not just the physical part, but this space for her to tell the whole truth. And all these impatient men... Jairus and and the disciples to have to listen to all these details that we get the summary of early on. And it must have made an impression on Peter because he can still tell it to Mark all these years later when, when Mark is writing it down for him. Well, I'm a family practice doctor. That means primary care. That means talking to people a lot. And... Once a year, every fall, the American Academy of Family Physicians has a continuing medical education event, and it rotates around different cities. And way back in the 1990s, I was, Mary and I were back in the States on a home assignment during the fall when this event was being hosted in Chicago, and it was real easy for me to attend. It was in the McCormick place. And so for each hour, there's a number of different sessions that you can choose from, depending on your area of interest. And I noticed one that was, I forget the exact title, but the idea was that in the short amount of time that you have with somebody, 15 or 20 minutes of a consult, how can you hear their stories? How can you engage with people? Recognizing that oftentimes just the act of being heard by somebody else, being listened to by somebody else, can be therapeutic. It can be healing on its own account. So I went to this, um, and we learned a little acronym called BATHE, B-A-T-H-E. And each of those letters stands for something a physician could share with his patient. So the B means a background question. Like, tell me what's going on in your life. And then the A is, um, because one big reason doctors oftentimes don't want to ask a question like that is they don't want to open up a big can of worms that they can't put back in the can before the end of the time that they have. So the A is just a follow-up question that is whatever it is that they say, well, how is that affecting you? And then that's the, so the B is the background question. The A is how is it affecting you? The T of bathe is what troubles you most about that, or they have a chance to sort of assign their meaning to whatever it is that's happening. The H is, okay, how are you handling that? And the final E is, and some expression of empathy. 
that you've heard them and, and can relate to whatever it is that they say. So the person who was conducting this workshop, he gave an example of how um, in his clinic he had seen a woman who had come in for uh, a physical to renew her driver's license. I think it was in New Jersey, and at that time to renew your license it was a requirement to have a medical certificate. And so uh, he'd done everything necessary for her certificate and because it was a requirement in his program to use this, he said, so what's going on in your life? And she said, nothing, absolutely nothing. So he followed up, well, how is that affecting you to have nothing going on in your life? And and she said, well, terrible. And it it came out that she had recently moved from Iowa into, uh, well, she was in New Jersey, but to work in New York. And she had moved away from all her friends and family in Iowa and as yet had no new friends or family in New York and was feeling very isolated. And when he said, well, what troubles you most about that? It was that she was out of sight, out of mind, Everyone from back home was forgetting about her and no one here in her new place cared about her and that she has just fallen through the cracks and become invisible. And when he asked, well, how are you handling that? Uh, it came out that she was just going home back to her little apartment at night and had been starting to drink more than was probably good for her just to numb herself a little bit from this terrible situation. So then he could empathize with her and maybe suggest that that wasn't the healthiest uh, way to handle that situation and and so forth. Okay, And so then he asked us to practice that. And we did, and this was back in the 90s, and I still remember it today because he made me practice it. So I'm going to ask you to practice it now too. I want you to just... Turn to the person next to you, and the, you don't have to fully role play it, so you don't have to answer the questions, but I want you to um, run through those five questions. If you can remember what they are, one to the other, and then back again. Um, the B-A-T-H-E, okay? Please do that. I'll give you just a minute. And if you're listening on Zoom, do it to the person next to you, or at least say it out loud to yourself so that you remember. All right. Everybody got them? B for background. A for how is it affecting you. T for what troubles you most. H for how are you handling it. The E for empathy. So... Way back that that morning in McCormick Place in Chicago, I'm in this big room, even bigger than this room, and we were all seated at tables for with two people, and everybody who was enrolled had a had a name tag and so forth. and And sitting next to me was a, a young woman, uh, and also family doctor, and um, we were asked to do this role play. So. The first time through, she was the role of the doctor and I was the patient. And she said, so what's going on in your life now? And I said just something briefly to the effect of, 
oh, I work in Bolivia, but we're back in the States for a few months, and, and sometimes it feels a little disorienting, moving between cultures, and, oh, well, how's that affecting you, and, and so forth. And <clears throat> after we run through it um, with me, then we switched around, and, and you know how it's kind of awkward, uh, but I said, well, so what's going on in your life? And there was this really long pause. And then all of a sudden she blurted out, I'm having an affair with my, the partner that I, that I'm in practice with. So if you were me, what would you have said? <laughs> right? Yeah, your training kicks in. And it, 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 I was speechless for about a minute. That didn't, I did not expect that. And yeah, so I said, so how is that affecting you? And she said, I can't sleep. I haven't been able to talk to anybody about it. Um, and, and when it came out, the question of what troubles you most, um, she had two kids by somebody that she really did love and care about, um, but her kids were the same age now as she had been when her parents divorced. And she was so afraid that what was happening with her now was going to end in a divorce that was going to affect her kids the way that she'd been affected. And... Um, I should back up and say, right when we got to that place of how's it affecting you, the instructor called us all back again to the big session, and we went on through the rest of the presentation um, with this sort of still hanging between us. And when it was all over and the bell rang and, and you could go off to your next session, they said, well, do you want to talk about it anymore? And, and she said, yes, because she said, there's nobody safe I can talk to back where I'm home. So she kind of went through it all, and I said, I'm a Christian, would you like me to pray with you? And she said, yes, please. And so I did, and I've never seen her again. But I think that it is true, just listening to somebody can open the road to healing. Them putting their story into words and having that validated is important. And that's what Jesus was modeling for his disciples in this story of making time in the midst of a medical emergency to let someone tell their whole truth, it says. Now, I'm sure God has a sense of humor because this happened to me yesterday. Mary and I were in Louisville, Kentucky, and we had been at this great big global missions health conference. Thousands of people there. It ended at midday. Mary and I were, it was at a place called Southeast Christian Center. It's a mega church. I've never been there before. It's like being on a college campus. Someone said it has 30,000 members. So we were over in one <clears throat> side of this immense atrium, um, getting our stuff together to to leave, and a woman comes over. And she she asked me my name. It seemed like she thought I was somebody who had turned out not to be, but um, 
then she wanted to tell her story. And I didn't think about this at the time. <laughs> but it was like God was saying, um, do you practice what you preach? You're going to talk about this tomorrow. Um, do you have time for this woman? She was a middle-aged woman, and she had with her uh, her son, who was in his 20s and had some kind of a developmental disability, not sure exactly what. But fortunately, my wife was with me, and she kicked in, and where I was kind of wanting to wrap up the conversation and get on to the next thing, like Jairus and like the disciples in this story, Mary made the space for her. And this woman told us this, I don't know, 20-minute long story. And I'm like, where is this going? But Mary was very graceful. That's what Jesus is showing here, right? He's showing grace. He's making space to hear somebody's story. He's validating it. He's bringing this woman back into the family of God. I never really paid attention. I noticed the healing part of it, and I love that. But just I love that she is stammering, is is not speaking quickly and succinctly. She hadn't had this planned out. But Jesus is validating her experience. He's bathing her, to use our acronym. He's restoring her dignity. And then when she's all finished, daughter, go in shalom. Go in complete well-being with yourself, with your community, and with God. So whenever I get a chance to address God's people, I always have one goal in mind. I want everybody to love Jesus just a little bit more than they do, to be a little bit more devoted to following him. And I hope as we look at this story here, you do love Jesus and want to be like him. Now you have invested in our ministry in Bolivia for a long time, and in particular these last four years. And so I do want to give you a real quick report. There's Bolivia in the center of South America, and there's our city of Potosi um, in the southwest corner of Bolivia. It's in white there because it's up in the mountains. Actually quite high, 13,000 feet high. Um, this is the mountain that is the reason for the city being there that had all the silver that the Spaniards mined for hundreds of years. The mountain just dominates the city. You can see it from every angle. It has all these beautiful moods that I come to enjoy and that I miss living in the Midwest where everything's so flat. Because it's such an old city, 500 years old, the streets were laid out long before there were cars and um, quite narrow. I love seeing the weather systems build up and, and come in over the horizons, beautiful sunsets and rainbows. I worked at this family medicine clinic with uh, with this team. 
Um, all four children in the picture with this woman I delivered over the years, first out in the rural Yawisla, the Quechua community, and the, and the last little baby there in the clinic in the city of Potosi. Um, this was one of my patients who wanted to pay us with this chicken, and we had to not having a chopping block in our kitchen to delightly uh, to reluctantly turn him down. This is our assembly there in the city of Potosi, all sending their greetings to all the other assemblies that we might be at. And that assembly was also the source of a number of our co-workers here. Um, Lorenzo in blue uh, is a miner and, and brought me into the mines to get to know the people there. Brenda with Mary uh, is one of the teachers in the English school that Mary started. And Dr. Alice down in the, in the bottom was the Bolivian doctor who worked with me the, this past well, last year, um, and who I really trained to carry on with what I was doing. Mary has not only Brenda, but Amanda, um, teaching English, and um, short-termers, Michelle from Canada, came down. This was a young couple that came to know the Lord through the English class. He's an architect, she's a lawyer, um, Mary was the one who perceived their interest in spiritual things in one of her classes and um, a subsequent conversation got us invited to go to their home and have a Bible study on Wednesday nights with their extended family. That was before they had kids and now we're godparents to this boy um, and have had a long relationship with them. We do still go back to that rural community of Quechua people called Yawisla. But in the city we've made inroads into this group of miners who are still hauling ore out of that mountain that I showed you at the beginning under quite precarious conditions. And that too resulted in a Bible study with some miners that we did on Monday nights in their homes. Mary became quite close with Julia, Lorenzo's wife. Um, this was from a newspaper in our city of Potosi back in January. Already there had been five fatal accidents among the miners on January 18th. Um, <clears throat> and there's an ad in the paper for um, people who know about occupational health and safety. That was an area that I'd retrained in, industrial security. Um, that's a new area of missions that we might not have considered before, but they're asking for people with expertise in that area. I don't know if you can see, but there's a stain on the doorway here next to this mine entrance. That's llama blood. That's sacrifice. They still are actively sacrificing blood to the devil whose image is inside the entrance to these mines so that he'll drink that blood instead of their blood um, every day. The miners are a group still quite living and dying without knowing the good news of Jesus Christ. And 
there's a video there. Uh, if you want to take a picture of that slide with that address, I'm not going to take the time to show you this video this morning, but um, it's on the web of our outreach to those miners. So, just to tell you a little bit about what our situation is right now, we came back from Bolivia in March, and um, this is my mother. She turned 90 years old. She was my clever mother who was um, our business address in the States all the years we were in Bolivia. Still quite healthy physically, but in that moderate stage of dementia of the Alzheimer's type. My father's been gone for 12 years now, and um, she can no longer live on her own. So we are living with her, and... Even to come away like for this weekend together is a big deal. We have to plan out who can check in on her regularly. Twice she's gotten lost, and it's a big area of concern. So mostly we've been trading off when one of us travels, the other stays home, and so forth. But that's our our new reality, to be faithful to her and also to our adult kids who have kids and both parents are working and need help with child care and so forth. So we still have our our same goal of that unfinished task. You remember when Jesus' followers asked him, well, what will be the sign of your coming again? And Jesus basically said, when you finished your task, I'll be back. He said, the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all ethnos, all the families, languages, nations, and tribes. And then the end will come, said Jesus. So the same goal and new role of being on our mission's health ministries team, of helping people who were like we were 33 years ago, with skills in health professions, wanting to use them to be part of God's missionary enterprise overseas, help them to get started, help them to find a place where they can flourish, stay in touch with them while they're overseas, train them before they go, debrief them when they come back, visit them from time to time when they're on the field. That's what we're going to do since it's something that we can do while we take care of these family responsibilities that we have as well. I just, as we close, want to read you one paragraph from this little commentary on our story. What does love look like in the Gospels? It looks like a teacher in a crowd who notices the trembling tug of shaking fingers on his cloak. It looks like a heart that melts at the cry of a desperate father. It looks like the healer who visits a sick child and takes her limp body into his arms. It looks like the man who risks defilement to touch the bloody and the broken. It looks like the God who insists on the whole truth, however falteringly told. It looks like the Christ who waits with tenderness as a voiceless woman finds her voice. It looks like Jesus who renames the outcast daughter 
and bids her go in shalom. I understand that you're working through Second Peter and about to enter chapter 3. And when I heard that, I just couldn't resist putting up this favorite text of mine from the very end of, of that letter. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That couple that I showed who became Christians through Mary's English class and their little boy, I was just in Bolivia a couple weeks ago, and I gave, he's four and a half years old now, I gave them a, a Spanish Bible for children to be reading with him. And I inscribed it to Bruno with this verse in hopes that that will be true of him and that it will be true of us. <clears throat> so you won't forget now that Jesus makes space for our stories. That's a healing thing to get to tell your story. And if you get the chance to invite somebody to tell their story, um, don't be afraid. You won't know what to say. You don't always have to answer their stories. and But just them being able to tell their story to you can help sort things out in their own mind and come to a conclusion that God may be leading them. I also understand that just last week you were praying for the persecuted church. And when I heard that, I thought of uh, what Jesus said to Peter there in Luke 22. I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. The book of Hebrews, the letters of Peter... Revelation, the messages to the seven churches were all written to people who were experiencing suffering that their faith might not fail. And it just brought to mind something that I found when we moved back into my mother's house. And it was her father's Bible. Uh, old, the leathers crumbling, the old version of the, of the KJ, KJV. And it was a story that I had heard, but this was the first tangible evidence I found of it. So my grandfather, his name was Robert Fred Elliott. He married his sweetheart, Jean, on August 18, 1914. And early in... 1915, they got the good news that she was expecting their first child. And she went into labor on their first anniversary. And she died in childbirth and lost the baby as well. So maybe you can see up at the top. It says, married, 2.30 p.m., August 18, 1914. Died, 1.50 p.m., August 18, 1915. My darling Jean, this is my grandfather writing, God-given mate and sweet companion was taken from my side at the close of one short happy year together, called home to her Savior's side, there, away from this troubled scene, to await our going to be with her, for which we earnestly long. Now, you were praying for people who were suffering because of persecution. 
this wasn't a case of being persecuted for her faith. But it was a case on my grandfather's part, I imagine, of intense suffering. I don't have a diary or anything else of his thoughts of how he processed what happened. But I know from my own experience, when you're involved in the Lord's work, it's almost like I have this tacit assumption that, okay, God, you've got my back. I'm I'm working for you, so you're going to take care of me, this reciprocity now that God's in my debt and and he'll take care of what's out of my control. And to lose your wife in childbirth and on the day of your anniversary, your first anniversary, which so many associations of of celebration and happiness, it just seems like this twisting of the knife, this cruel fate. And my grandfather at this time was very deeply involved in assembly work and he was the apprentice to a preacher named Harry Ironside and they would travel together and my grandfather was a young man, he would get the early part of the service and then Harry Ironside would take over, the same man who became the pastor of Moody Church for many years in Chicago in the 30s, 40s and 50s. And to be involved in the Lord's work and then to suffer this loss, I imagine, I mean, it at least crosses your mind, is it worth it to serve a God who lets things like this happen? And the temptation to walk away from your faith. And maybe you know people who have been through such intense suffering that they just said, no, that's enough. I don't understand why this would happen and I don't want any more to do. So I don't know how my grandfather worked through that. The fact that he didn't walk away from his faith is important to me because years later he met Clara, the woman who would become my grandmother. And with Clara, they had Bert Elliott, who was a missionary for 60 years in Peru. They had Jim Elliott, who was a missionary in Ecuador and whose story became widely known after he was killed. And then they had my mother, and she had me. And I married Mary, and we went to Bolivia. And I wouldn't be here today if my grandfather's faith had failed. And so I just wanted to let you know, as you pray for people that their faith may not fail in suffering, And as you endure whatever suffering you are enduring right now, Jesus, who gave us this wonderful example of hearing our stories, wants to know our stories, and he also is praying that our faith might not fail. And as we in turn grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ and become more like Him and create spaces in our lives for other people to tell their stories, then we are doing that, continuing that healing ministry of restoring people to community and to shalom. Interestingly, my grandfather on my father's side, four years later in 1919, lost his first wife in childbirth, too, 
We thought maternal mortality was only a problem in Bolivia a century ago in the U.S. Both my grandfathers lost their first wives, but didn't lose their faith and passed it on with their second wives to their children and to their grandchildren, and I benefit from them. So stand firm, I pray for you, because generations from now it will still make a difference. Do I have time to tell you one more story about this guy? Just to end with, not a medical story. <clears throat> Back when we were living in that rural Quechua village, every town in Latin America has a plaza, a central square that they meet in. And our little village had a bare space and they wanted to have a plaza. And so we made it a community project and everybody contributed sand and cement and we all... Um, we're responsible for making our little part and bringing in some trees and whatnot. And we had a beautiful little plaza at the end of it, but there were no benches. And the town asked us if we might um, contribute some benches to the town square. And we said, okay. We were happy with helping out as long as everybody else was doing their bit too. So I went into the city of Potosí, we were living out in the countryside, came into the city, and I asked around, where can you get benches? Because in their city plaza, they, they had lots of these nice ornamental benches. And they said, well, you can't buy them ready-made. You have to uh, go find somebody who can do it. And you start by going to somebody who can make the, the metal side frames, and then you go to a carpenter to get the wooden parts across it. So they said, go down to where the cemetery is. In Bolivia, people aren't buried in the ground. They're buried in these niches and these sort of walls that come up. And it's bricked over, and then there's this bronze or a metal frame with a glass and, the, and picture. And it's those people who make those metal frames for the niches that can pour, heat up metal and pour it into molds and, and make these things for the benches. So I went there and I found a sign for Marucci and Sons. And <clears throat> I talked to him. I told him what I wanted. He said he could do it. Um, you pay 50% up front for the materials and the other 50% when you when you get the finished product. So I gave him, we agreed on a price, I gave him the 50%, and I went back out to our rural area. We only came in about once a month then. So on my next visit, I went to see him, hoping to bring out these benches, and he said, oh, well, something's come up, they're not quite ready for the next time. So I said, okay. Uh, so the following month came back, and, and they still weren't ready. Well, this went on until I eventually realized that this Mr. Marucci that I was dealing with was an alcoholic and he had apparently drank up the money that I had given him and wasn't going to be able to do this, these things. Well, I kept insisting, I tried and tried and, and really after about probably a year of trying, I I gave up. I said to Mary, well, we've lost our money and I'm going to quit losing so much time. <clears throat> and that was that. That was in 2004, about. So 
probably 12 years later, we were now living in the city of Potosi. And just uh, this past November 1st is a big holiday in Bolivia for All Saints Day. And it's when people go to the cemetery and put flowers on their relatives' graves. And one All Saints Day, I decided to go to the cemetery. I wanted to see what the customs were there. And I'm kind of wandering around um, and looking at these niches and what's going on with the families and their customs and so forth when the voice behind me says, Dr. Esteban, Dr. Steve. And I turned around and it was this young man. And he he said, do you recognize me? Which is a question I hate, especially... <laughs> You see so many patients every day over months and years and, and to pull a, my wife can do it, but I can't pull a name out of, out of my head like that. So I said, no, I'm really sorry. Who are you? And he said, I'm the son of Vicente Murucci across the street. And my first thought was, oh, did your dad finally make the benches? <laughs> And he said, no, no, he never made the benches. And, so, oh. and he went on to say, he said, I was one of the kids that would come to the door because his dad had other creditors. And so he started hiding and wouldn't answer the door. And he would send his kids out when there was a knock. And I remember saying, is your dad home? And, and the kid would go inside and, and come back in a few minutes and say sort of sheepishly, oh, well, he went out. And you knew that it wasn't true, but you couldn't really yell at the kid. So he said, I was one of those kids who would use, answer your knocks. Um, and he said, I don't know if you remember, but once when you were talking with my dad, you left him a Bible. And I actually didn't remember that. But it must have been after I'd found out that he was having these problems with alcoholism and so forth. So I said, oh, well, did your dad read it? And he said, no, no, he never read it. And I'm like, why is this kid even coming up to me to tell me that nothing good has happened? But then he went on and he said, my brother and sister and I, we read it. And from reading that Bible and later from listening to Christian radio, all his siblings had become Christians. And this boy went on to enroll in Mary's English school because he wants to be a missionary and he knows he'll need to join a multicultural team and will need to know something besides Spanish. And his sister went on to medical school and when she graduated, she came to our clinic and did a rotation with us until she got a job of her own. And his older brother as well um, came and became actually a part of that assembly that you saw in the picture there. And God was just gracious enough to me to let me know the end of a story on that one day by visiting that. that. But the point is, we just, we're faithful. God has invited us to be his partners in the restoration of all things. He did that act of redemption. Now he's about restoring. He'll consummate it in the future. But in the meantime, like Paul says, we get to be his co-laborers. And as you just go tomorrow and do your job in your circle of influence as his witness, things happen. You hear people's stories. 
you create space for shalom to be recovered. And sometimes we find out like this how it ended up. Many times we, we don't get to find out. But we're still part of the body of Christ with Jesus as his head and we can grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior. So that's my word to you to encourage you as you go out tomorrow. Thank you for your attention. It's lovely to be here. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, once again, I thank you for this story. I thank you for Jesus making Jairus wait, making his impatient disciples wait, making the whole crowd make space so that this woman could tell the whole truth of what her experience had been, what she'd lived through, and how she'd found her healing in you. And I thank you for the part of the story that we didn't read about how Jesus went on with Jairus and redeemed the story of his little daughter as well and set her on a path to shalom. And I pray that we would know more and more of that shalom, that complete well-being of relationships and communion with you that you came when you promised life and life in abundance. Thank you that we can partner with you and in everything we do and say, direct us to the filling of your purpose. In Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you.